Welcome to Real Common Treatable with me, Clint Malley. Today, I am joined by Dr. Aaron Weiner. He is a board-certified practicing psychologist, national speaker, and president of the Society of Addiction in Psychology. And joining me today as my co-host is Lindsay Vass, our outreach ambassador with Sandstone Care. Today, we're talking all about emotional hygiene for teens. What is going on with adolescents that they can do for their mental health to be proactive, um, on a daily, weekly basis, just like you would if you're brushing your teeth or combing your hair, or taking a shower. But first off, Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what made you interested in this topic? Why is this something that that emotional hygiene, something that you feel like is important that we can think about as people who are working with teens in the substance use or in the mental health field um, and how it can be like a positive thing for them? Yeah, so as you're probably aware, there was a national mental health crisis declared by the Surgeon General, and he's actually been very forward about talking about how there's just a tremendous need right now to support and scaffold the mental health of teens in this country and that they're really suffering right now. And if you're looking at the clinical journal articles, depression's up, anxiety is up. And this is something that as a practicing psychologist, I've seen as well. And as an addiction specialist in particular, I see that people are more and more now looking for ways to try to deal with all this extra energy and extra stress that's that's got to go somewhere. The stress system is just like any other system in the body. You take things in, you, you have to let it out somehow, or it starts to cause problems if you just stuff it all down inside. And so I came across the, the concept of emotional or mental hygiene in a journal article actually last year that I just thought was incredibly insightful. Did some digging online, found some more resources there. But my main takeaway was that people are not talking about this enough because it's something where if you do take care of your mental world, you will see an impact in how you experience your life and honestly, probably in your body, your physical world as well. So who can practice emotional hygiene? Is it just specifically for adults? Is it for adolescents? Can it be for younger children? Well, just like for physical hygiene, everybody can do it and everybody should do it. You know, it's not like you you age out of brushing your teeth um, or if anyone does tell me your secrets, although I kind of like brushing my teeth, I suppose it's, it's minty, but no, everybody can do it. Everybody can do it. Everybody should do it because everyone feels those pressures. Everyone has stress. Everyone has these negative emotional or affective states. And if you're taking care of it slowly, progressively, just making sure you, you keep that low, you're going to find that it gives you greater control over what you do that might be less healthy, like say stress eating or uh, drinking when you wouldn't otherwise want to drink. So what are some of the big basics, like the fundamentals? When we think about emotional hygiene, right? Like obviously with regular hygiene, we have those things that we know we should be doing every time. And then we probably also have those things that are like, all right, like if you want to get extra credit, you should be flossing, right? Maybe all of you guys are just like really adamant about flossing. But for me, sometimes it gets pushed to the back burner. So when we're talking to parents about how they can work with their teens, what are like the big fundamental ones that you think that clinicians should be focusing on? That's a really good question. And I'm going to actually back us up a second to, t to frame the answer in that when we talk about emotional hygiene. What we're actually doing is lowering the amount of activity in a part of our brain called the default mode network. That's a part of our brain that tends to light up when we're inwardly focused, when we're ruminating, and when you 
put people in brain scans, fMRI machines, you see that area light up when they're anxious, when they're depressed, when they're having these negative emotional states. And actually, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, what that targets is the default mode network in the brain so that it reduces the activity. So we've long seen that there's this relationship between that sort of brain activity and uh, whether or not you're having positive or negative feelings. And so there are specific types of activities that you can do through lifestyle that doesn't require big magnets next to your head that will do the same thing in lowering the activity in that default mode network. Some of the easiest ones for people to do are some basic cognitive behavioral therapy exercises, which we can talk about what that looks like, some positive psychology exercises, meditation and mindfulness are also really great ways of lowering activity in your default mode network, taking walks in nature, also nature exposure helps. And then lastly, prayer. If you are a spiritual person, prayer has been shown to reduce that activity as well. So there's a lot of options that people at any age can do. And the recommendation right now is go for about 10 minutes a day. I love that. And so um, I am actually, I'm a visual person, but I love to learn by examples too. So the more examples you can give, the better about um, how to you know, instill emotional hygiene in all of us. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, aside from sitting and meditating, and we can get more into the nitty gritty of that because there's ways that work and then there's ways that don't. Uh, but probably one of the easiest, lowest hanging fruits is more in the positive psychology camp uh, in, the ter- in terms of using, say, like a gratitude journal where you start your day by going over things in your life that you're feeling grateful for, things that you're going to do to make the day a good day. Or uh, even as I know, uh, kind of uh, sappy or or strange as it sounds, uh, doing affirmations. I know that comes across as kind of cheesy. Um, And ideally, you don't just want to give yourself like empty platitudes that you don't really believe. But just to give you an example of this, a lot of people have very negative self-talk where they give themselves permission to beat themselves up and talk down to themselves, think really negative thoughts to themselves over and over and over and over again. Positive affirmations are just the other side of that coin. So if you give yourself permission to talk down to yourself over and over, it's also okay to talk positively to yourself over and over. That's what builds internal monologues. And so the more you can practice that, the more positive you might find your thinking gets, particularly after you do it for a a little while. You know, it's not like things change in a day. You got to invest in it. How can a parent kind of teach this to their kid, right? So if I go to a teen and they're 14, 15, I'm like, yo, I want you to keep a gratitude journal. It's important. Helps you to like have positive self-talk. How do I model this in a way that can gradually release it to where they have more and more autonomy to do it themselves, right? Um, rather than me just being like, yo, you need to do this. How can like a parent or a teacher or a loved one uh, build this practice up for them? When you're trying to get a teenager to do something is to make a solid value proposition, particularly if you're hoping for them to do it when they're not under your thumb anymore, you know, let them know why it matters and perhaps even find some common ground around like if they can acknowledge that they're really anxious a lot of the time or that they're feeling depressed a lot of the time, that this would be helpful to them in some way. Start with the problem and looking for solutions and then bring that out and say, okay, here's a way supported by science just takes you like five minutes in the morning to do. How about we give it a shot? 
And from that point, you know, if they're doing it on paper and, and you can buy pre-made journals, then, you know, you, you could check if they're open to being, to sharing that. There's also uh, apps that do this really well. One that I've, I've found does a great job at it is called the five minute journal, where it's just a quick five minute exercise in the morning, a five minute exercise at night, it structures it all for you there and keeps a log of it. So you can go back and look at what you've done. What do you think the psychology is behind negative self-talk? Why do you think we feel that it's okay to talk negatively about ourselves? Because I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's easy, easier said than done, right? Just say positive affirmations in the morning. Oh, you know, but I think it's so easy to talk negatively and beat ourselves up for A, B, and C. Why do you think we do that? That is a really good question. And I think that the answer lies with one foot in nature and one foot in uh, nurture. On the nature side, I think it has to do with a psychological principle called the fundamental attribution error, which means when you interpret yourself or somebody else in a situation and they're acting in a certain way, we tend to like to blame the person and like their character for why they acted as opposed to the situation for influencing them to act in a certain way. And a lot of the time, our behavior actually is very informed by what's going on around us. Like take, for example, like if you're driving and someone's tailgating you, you might drive differently in that situation than if they weren't drive faster or try to compensate. That's not because like you're a scared driver or you don't know how to drive. That's because of the situation you're in. But that means sometimes then when things go badly in our life, we look at ourselves and say, wow, that's, that's, that's because of me, because I failed. And then on top of that, sometimes taking ownership of something, feeling like you were the one who influenced that outcome gives you a sense of control, which is something, honestly, that kids don't have very much of in their life. They're told what to do, what they can do, what they can't do, where to go. I mean, there's things are oftentimes very rigid, which is part of why we see that, that pushing out and rebellion in teenage years. But that makes it even perhaps more compelling to try to internalize some of these things, even if they're negative. And on the nurture side, a lot of times our self-talk comes from a script that we've heard before from other people in our lives. So if we never seem like we're good enough to really get praise from our parents or if our peer group does a lot of teasing or put downs, or if, if we're just not having situations where we get externally at model, like, hey, you can celebrate yourself or, hey, this didn't work so well, but it will better next time. That sort of the growth oriented mindset, if all we're getting is more fixed negative things, then that eventually over and over and over again becomes that internal monologue. And I can't tell you how many adults I see who still have that. They say they still have that playing in their head from when their mom or their dad would say that to them over and over when they were a kid. So I, I think it's both nature and nurture that, that lead to that phenomenon. There's a few things about what you're saying that are really interesting when it comes to getting buy-in from the teen, right? And having that value proposition and making sure that it's oriented with their goals does seem like a really essential part. Because if we know anything about working with kids or really if you're just working with people in general, it's that you can't make anybody do anything. Not really. Like you're not going to be able to force somebody to write gratitudes. Um, and people are only going to do something if they actually want to do it. Now we can talk about, you know, the intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation and all of those different things. But at the end of the day, if a teen doesn't feel like it's something that's going to help them with something that's important to them, then it's not going to matter. Right. So I love that. Uh, there's, I have kind of like a two-part question. I'm going to try to frame it in a way that doesn't seem so confusing. But so I know that like modeling is 
a really important thing for the learning process. If I'm a clinician, if I'm a teacher, if I'm a parent, then I need to be able to model, like you said, because we tend to learn from what we actually see, right? So one, how do we model uh, this type of positive psychology as part of our emotional hygiene? And I guess the second part of this question is that are we trying to combat, like to have more positive than negative, or are we trying to create a more realistic framework for dealing with negative emotions? Because um, I also know, like when we think about books, like when the body says no by Gabor Mate, right? He's like, he's like, hey, like these sad feelings, they need to be felt, and if they're not felt and dealt with, like these thoughts, then they ruminate into becoming something else, right? So. Uh, two parts to that. How do we model that? And is it like a is it like a trying to have more positive than negative, or are we trying to just deal with these emotions differently? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start with the second question about the uh, how, how, what's the balance of thought and the mind. I, I I would agree with the sentiment that you don't want to deny thoughts or deny emotions. That doesn't work very well. So sometimes when you talk about people like not wanting to feel their feels, it's like they're trying to sweep it under the rug, but like this is emotions are like a milkshake. Like you put them under there, they're going to start to smell. It's not like, Oh, I just can't see it anymore. It's going to be a problem. And so letting it out absolutely matters. I think though, what I stress and I, I weave a lot of mindfulness into my work and in, into how I help people work with thoughts and how I work with my own, to be honest with you, is that thoughts are just that, thoughts. We have all sorts of thoughts every day that we don't ask for that just, just pop into our mind, whether or not we believe them is the most important part, whether or not we feed them or whether or not we believe them. And so I think going at the balance for sure, you know, like if all you're thinking are negative thoughts, you're going to have a very hard time feeling good about yourself. But at the same time, it's not a problem if they're there. It can just be something that's become a habit of the mind. Or maybe there's another reason why the negative thoughts are there. Denying them, not necessarily helpful, but believing them is also not necessarily helpful. And so finding that balance and a healthy relationship with your mind is really useful. Now, I'm going to use that to segue into the other part of your question of how do we model this uh, in that about five years ago, I started meditating every single day. And my kids are very aware of this. Uh, I do meditations around them sometimes. I do them with me sometimes. They're, they're, they're little guys, uh, five and eight right now, um, but so not quite teens. But at the same time, they're aware that this is something that I do. They're aware why I do it. They're aware of the benefits and having more emotional literacy and building that into how they deal with their emotions from an early age is part of how my wife and I are, are working with them to hopefully avoid some of, uh, you know, p potentially emotional problems down the line. You know, n nothing's perfect, but you do what you can to try to create a, a workable system, but just do it. You know, it's kind of like, I, I think that a lot of parents sometimes get into almost like martyr mode where it's like, I'm a good dad or I'm a good mom if I just sacrifice all the time and I don't take care of myself and that I just put my kids' needs first all the time. Uh, and all that, that can work. And there's, there's, that's not necessarily the best way to model it either because then you don't teach your children how to take care of themselves as, as they grow up. And when they think of how do I want to exist in the world, most of the parents I know who do that are, are fairly burned out all the time and almost feel chained to like, I have to be a good parent and this is how I have to do it versus that it's actually okay to do something for yourself and to take some time for yourself and showing that, that to your children has value too. So 
I think it's safe to say that emotional hygiene and practicing positive psychology is is not just, you know, something that, oh, yeah, we all need to do it to feel better. And, you know, it, it's it's trendy right now. It's actually like a scientifically proven um, phenomenon that makes us better people that that, uh, you know, makes us, you know, ha- have more positive actions, more positive interactions with people. Um, it's been scientifically proven um, to to have positive outcomes. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, it's and the proof honestly is in the pudding. So like if you look at your life and you're really stressed out and you look around and you see all these incoming sources of stress, whether or not it's, it's your work or kids or you know, whatever else is stressing you out at the moment or for kids, whether or not it's grades or social issues or cyberbullying. And I mean, there's so much that they're having to take care of right now too. Um, all these sources of stress coming in. And then you look at, the output side and say, okay, so like, how, how are you metabolizing this and letting it out of your system? And it's not something that you actually get out by playing Fortnite. Like that's fun, but that doesn't actually do the same thing. Fun is important to have in life too, but it's not the same thing as coping. It's not the same thing as working through emotions and then discharging them uh, in a healthy way that gets at that default mode network. And I think what you'll see is when you encounter folks of any age who are struggling, you're going to see that imbalance where there's a lot on the side of the scale that causes pressure and problems and very little on the other side of the scale that helps you process through them and release them in a healthy way. So I want to kind of come back to one of the things Lindsay said, because I I love these concrete examples too. Like let's do a few scenarios. Okay. So like, let's think about different types of, let's specifically focus on teens. Let's do um, a parent and a teen. Let's do a clinician and a teen. Um, And let's do one for like mental health and for substance use, right? So what's an example of a way that we might use emotional hygiene or work with a teen using emotional hygiene for a parent who's working with their kid who's got a mental health challenge? Yeah. So I'm, I'm remembering back to a time, uh, and, and granted, I'm, I was involved in this scenario. So there's a therapist involved, but I, it was a, it was a 12 year old boy who was really struggling with a lot of somatic or physical problems around anxiety, particularly at night. Uh, and around the dark and in being alone, he would be having headaches and stomach aches and constantly getting his parents. And it was, it was really causing a lot of stress both for the boy and for, and for his parents. And so it just seemed like he was incredibly tense. And so one part of what we, we had him do was just learn and then practice diaphragmatic breathing, which is, you know, where you breathe in through your belly as opposed to from your chest and is one of the only ways we know that can actually relax the nervous system. It activates the parasympathetic nervous system, lowers heart rate, blood pressure, all, all those good things that are involved with activation and de-escalation. It lets you do that on demand, but you have to practice it. You have to do it for a sustained period of time. And so his mom helped him with that and they did it every night for a couple of weeks. And actually that was a big part in having those somatic complaints go away in about, I think it was like six weeks because he knew how to calm his body down. And this is something that is very simple uh, to, to do. You don't need to be a professional to, to teach diaphragmatic breathing. It's, it's actually very simple. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of techniques like that that you can learn from a therapist, but then can do with your child at home, just between you and your child as a parent. What about with um, a clinician? 
So let's th- think about like maybe the most complex of, uh, let's do the flossing type of complex things that a clinician might work with a teen who's struggling with substance use. Like what, what's, some, uh, what's a more complicated form of emotional hygiene that might be taught to a teen? Yeah, well, so I think, so a good way to think about this, particularly on the substance use side, is to first, whenever you're working with substance use, you have to first figure out the why, like why why are they doing it? Because that's critical in actually modifying the behavior. Otherwise, whatever that unmet need is, whether or not it's social acceptance or anxiety or numbing out of trauma or or whatever's leading to the behavior, that's still going to be there. And it'll be very easy for them to either relapse or go to something else. Like you've got to get at the core. But once you've revealed that, right, and if it is something that might be able to be solved with some direct attention, you can guide them towards whatever fits best with them in their life. So say you've got a kid who is a little bit more analytical and would respond more to like, say, a cognitive behavioral approach to looking at these thoughts that are creating the negative feelings like uh like I am not going to do well on tests. Like I'm a bad test. I'm a bad test taker, right? Character judgment. I'm a bad test taker. I'm not going to do well on tests. That means I'm not going to get into college and my life is going to be a failure, right? So that's very classic sort of negative catastrophic uh, fortune telling thinking to, you know, th- throw some therapy jargon out there, predicting the future in a really catastrophic way. Okay. So you can teach a child what the different types of, you know, the technical term is cognitive distortions, but unhelpful ways of thinking are like predicting the future, like catastrophizing and all the rest of them so that they know what to look for. And then they can even break that down using worksheets on their own at home that you would first model with them while they're with you in the office. And something, again, you could potentially loop parents into to help reinforce as well. So, I mean, we, we could go through all the different mental hygiene types and give you different examples. But at the end of the day, whatever method works best for the client that you're working with is, is the way to go, in my opinion, regardless of the complexity. So I think anybody who's been watching or listening to this is going to say, okay, like I need to think about some patterns, some traditional things that I can be doing. And they're also going to be like, where can I learn more about Dr. Aaron Weiner? So where can people go to learn more about you and all the awesome work that you do. Oh, well, so my website is a great place to go, winerphd.com. And I do a lot of work uh, speaking uh, for, the, for the most part right now, still virtually in webinars, but around the country that way. I do lots of trainings with parents and schools and uh, health coalitions. And that's part of how I'm getting this message out. I think that a lot of what we've talked about today, whether or not it's positive psychology, cognitive psychology, uh, meditating in a scientifically valid way, they're, they're super attainable. You can totally do it. Um, there are even apps that can help you do it. There's great meditation apps out there. Some that even have, uh, like one that I really like for kids specifically is Headspace. Headspace has a lot of really good content in their library for teaching mindfulness to kids in a scientifically backed way and kids of all ages. But for everything we've talked about today, there are tools that you can use, uh, either like actual tools that you can use or just learn ways of, of working with your children. And so and that's a big part about what I do. And I also have a, 
uh, private practice that I do nationally now. Actually, psychologists are able to practice. It's about, I think, like 35 states now. So I used to see people in person, but once the pandemic started, it all went virtual and then went national. And so at this point, I, I actually, I'm talking to you today from my home office because almost I, I am outside Chicago. Almost nobody I work with lives here uh, at this point. Um, it's, it's become nationalized. Kind of an interesting career pivot there too. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that's what I'm up to. So a ton of different ways, uh, listeners, watchers, we're going to link to some of the tools that he talked about and also um, these links where you can find out more information about Dr. Aaron. And uh, listen, y'all, all the problems with emotional regulation, with mental health, with substance use, it's real. But with the help of things like emotional hygiene, it's actually also treatable and it's more common than we think. So until then, we will see you on the next episode.